You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Reality Check Radio. You're with Marie. This is Counterculture. And joining me now, all the way from Germany, and I've gotten up late. I'm really sorry about that, is Mike Nania, writer and filmmaker. I'm just, I'm dying to know the genesis of how an Aussie gets himself into Germany and a little bit about you before we dive into the work that you've been doing, which I've been following you for a wee while and I'm quite excited to have you here. All right. All right. Well, how do I get to Germany? Well, my, my sister lives here with her husband and I have been nomadic for a while. And so I tend to turn up on my siblings' doorsteps from time to time and and uh, and live near them. And so I've, I've been living here for uh, for a little while, um, mm-hmm. trying to get the the visa thing working in the Northern Hemisphere because there's more opportunity in, in, in yeah. film, I guess. Yeah. Look, Australia and New Zealand over the last few years have not been the easiest places to live or work. And Agreed, yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to take your opportunities when you can get them, really. Yes. So yes. What's the body of work that you've been doing over the last few years? And then we're going to dive into the reformers because I think okay. for listeners that do not know this story, this is going to blow their minds. Well, there's a few different ins here because it's been going for a long time. But I, I made a film called Digilante, which was about a, I guess it was a racist bus incident that took place on in Melbourne. And I filmed it and made a video and the video went viral. And then um, the, the film I made about this incident, this series of incidents that happened, was my experience through the media circus around this event, this viral racist bus event. And just the, the, just the feelings and the thoughts that are involved when you're in the middle of something and then everyone's talking about it, everyone's reporting on it, and um, you're in the middle of some strange media circus, I guess is the best way to put it. And so that, that was my first film, and that was kind of my introduction to how far away, uh, I guess, themes of race and uh, racism were taken away from anything practical or or even rational in the media mm. space and how, how crazy that can go. What year was that? Uh, that was 2012 when that happened. And yes. I was so working really? in, yeah, yeah. I was working in, um, in news media at the time and in the arts and film. I started noticing what has now become known the great, as the great awakening, the, um, the kind of ideological capture of these media industries and arts industries. And to begin with, I, I just felt that my morality was being policed in a, in a kind of unintuitive way for me. I wanted to understand what it was because <laughs> everyone around me, especially in the film industry, had to comport to a certain set of rules. And uh, in order to get funds, you had to, you know, have the, the right makeup of identities on your, on your team. You needed to comport to certain storytelling and you'd get notes that were, that were that were crazy from my perspective and so i thought that if, if i'm being forced to comport to this thing i better figure out what it is because it's not intuitively moral for, for me so i started investigating and started uh, hanging out with activists and and protesters and figuring out what this, this strange language was you know terms like uh, cis-normativity, intersectionality. There's a there's a kind of lexicon that goes along with this 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 movement that was moving into all of the the spaces around me. And so, I followed that upstream to the university because a lot of these people had read a certain set of books or been in through certain courses. The most the most kind of how would you say I guess uh, zealous. Uh, 
you know, people uh, that were were pushing this 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 ideology. They all they all spoke the same. They all had a yeah. shared uh, a shared canon that they read and courses yeah. even that they went through. And it was quite obvious. Like you you yeah. can follow this stuff up, upstream to the university quite easily. Yeah. And I ended up in a lot of identity studies courses, just looking through the materials, talking to uh, gender studies scholars, sitting in on lectures trying to understand what it was. And I did find that just asking questions, it was quite a hostile environment. They didn't take to questions very well. It's but, very, you know, doctrin- that- very doctrinal, wasn't it? That's the one thing very, that I've always found, yeah. very doctrinal. And yes, these, I'm yes. assuming that these were people that are what James, which we're going to talk about James a little bit later, but it's what James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose called critical theory. So it's that kind of really yes. Frankenstein sort of love child between neo-Marxism and postmodernism and deep yes, sort of yes. French philosophers into this modern sort of modern kind of uh, canon, hydra, really. mm. <laughs> yeah, zombie or whatever the hell it is. It's, so how did you yeah, find yeah. that? I mean, as somebody who is sort of wanting to be curious. Yeah, and find about this with a genuine open mind. Did you kind of feel like that you were sitting in lectures and it was invasion of the body snatchers, or was it? No, it it was very light on. Like it's 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 hard to see what it is when you don't know what to look for. And so mm. a lot a lot of it, it was just strange language and and concepts really. And when I say it was hostile, I, I guess it wasn't it wasn't like get out. But it was, it was. I guess I'm a six foot two, bald brown man. I guess the brown probably helps. But just like rocking up to a to a gender studies class is probably a bit strange. But yeah, it, it didn't it didn't feel like open dialogue. It didn't feel like you know. Say say if I go to any other, um, I show an interest in any other scholars field. They're usually pretty keen to talk to me as a filmmaker they they're uh, they're very interested mm. and so i just felt like there were buzzes and things like that that i was touching and it wasn't hostile as in um you know i wasn't going to be cancelled or anything like that but it was um do the work uh, Mike. do the work yeah Bring yeah touchy him. touchy yeah. yeah tense it m- might be the way to put it so you sort of did all this research so is this how you hooked up with peter bogosian it is. So that, I guess that was phase one. And then phase two was to start to speak to people who were critical of it. And so I think the first person I spoke to was uh, a scholar in Melbourne who I won't name because I don't think he'll, well, I know that he won't like it. He, he studied Western civilization. I went to sit with him and I, there was, a, there was an interesting moment, I guess, when we went to his office we were talking loudly about these things and he was getting quite uncomfortable like a lot of people uh, when I'm asking these questions for some reason. And he said, hey, let's let's get out of here. Let's go to a cafe down the road. And as we were walking to the cafe around the road, I was, I was wondering why. And he's just like, I was just, I don't want anyone to hear us. And I just felt, mm-hmm. I knew that I, there was a film somewhere here because if there's a, there's a kind of academician that's, that's, you know, usually they're, they're quite obsessive and they, they love the chance of, of about talking about these things. And he was, you know, I guess, I guess passionate about his position, but to be scared, to be overheard in, in an academic environment, I just knew that there was something there. And these kinds of experiences happened again and again with people taking me off their official university email address to write more openly off of that, which, which I thought was strange. I just kept digging and digging and there, there is, uh, this was quite a while ago actually now, I, I guess it was probably, it was even, it might've even been 2016 when this, when I was starting to do this. There's this, there was at that time, I think a lot more people are open about their position on this stuff now, but at that time there were, there was something I called the intellectual underground. 
where it was a, a collection of, I guess, journalists, uh, academics, all kinds of intellectuals all in the world who could see this thing that was mutating inside the university system. And while they wouldn't really talk pub publicly about it, some people did, but most of them didn't, they would be very interested in having these private conversations. And so I ended up inside this private conversation network, eventually bumped into Peter Bogosian and his friend James Lindsay, and they were very public about their position at the time because they don't, just their, their personalities, they, they, never, they never keep quiet about anything. They had a plan, and the plan was to attack in some sense, maybe I guess exposed, but it, it did come across as an attack, the disciplines that I'd been looking at, these identity studies disciplines. So you meet Peter, you meet James. And Pete has a plan. I'm talking to Pete, actually, hopefully in a few weeks. So we've, cool. we've been getting the dates. So Pete has a plan. Cover this in the film, The Reformers. What was Pete's plan? Pete's plan was to submit hoax articles to, I guess, high-ranking academic journals in the, in the identity studies fields. From his perspective, and I think he's right now that 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 I've looked into this stuff as as much as I have, that is the genesis point of the woke ideology. And, and so, he can get away with it because he was at that time. What was the position he was holding at that time? Uh, he's a philosophy professor. He was a, yeah at, Port at Portland State University. At Portland State University, which is yeah. like. Yeah. The, you know, the absolute epicenter of woke on the West Coast of the United well, I guess, States. Yeah, I guess so. He was seeing it. Yeah, yeah. There's something about the Pacific Northwest and the universities over there that is, yeah. is quite that way inclined. And so he was seeing this great awakening that I was also mapping in Australia around him probably tenfold. I think uh, it's, it's, it is. It's the Mecca. It's the woke Mecca there in Portland. So did this genesis... For this idea, did it come before or after the Evergreen State College fiasco? It was similar timing. It was around right. the same time. I think he would have been coming up with this idea as, yes, Brett was Evergreen. getting. So for those who aren't aware, the Evergreen State College uh, situation is Brett, Wein Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Haying, had what he thought was full academic freedom as a ten both of them as tenured professors, only to find out that when you've got an administration that bend to the will of very woke student body, things can actually get really, really ugly, which I think is another whole, I mean, gosh, that's another whole episode. And you've done some work in this area. I know Benjamin Boyce has done some work in this area. But if you yeah. want to look up Evergreen State College, that will give you, and if you followed a lot of the COVID stuff, you'll know Brett's work. So let's park that yeah. over there. So Pete's got his idea. He's with James. How did the whole, let's film this whole thing, and well, turn this into a body of work. How did that come about? I was looking for a film. The whole the whole reason for my uh, investigation was to find a film somewhere. And so I, usually there's three major ingredients to a good documentary film, in my mind anyway. And one of them's the you need a landscape, a, a kind of high-level philosophical reason to be um, looking in a certain area. So the act this this is this problem within academia to me was a was a was a very very interesting landscape volatile landscape and so that's that's good for a film and then secondly you need characters and uh peter and jim are most certainly characters they're quite brash and interesting and they think very differently and so then i had the characters and then they had the plan so the third ingredient is, uh, of a good documentary is 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 a goal of some of some sort 
and if you've got those ingredients and then uh, then it's more or less you've got the kind of the basic ingredients for a documentary and so it made sense to get over to Portland and see what Pete was doing and then film the process. Mm. So this all started sort of around 2017, 2018. So the whole concept is Peter and James came up with an idea of writing a whole series of bogus Mm -hmm. academic papers and see if they could get them published into tier one journals using pseudonyms. And actually, I think they had... They actually managed to bring in a another friend that wasn't connected to them. Yeah, well, visibly well like in any way. the the project developed because I guess I guess I came along during its early conception. So along the way, the project developed, and they they fi- figured out the best way to do it. So to start, they had a friend because submitting to academic journals, you need um, uh, I guess I guess an academic name and credentials and things like that to just come across as valid as when you're submitting papers um, just in case the editor looks up your name or something like that and so they started off with a friend of Peter's who was a retired academic from Florida and he had he donated his name to the project and so they started off writing underneath underneath his name but they started getting a lot of rejections and Baldwin is the guy. Is uh, Dr. Richard Baldwin was the was the professor that they were using to submit the articles, and he was a white man. And so, to open up the identities of the names that they could submit papers under, um, they then built fake research institutes and made websites and had all these. Uh, <laughs> was it probably? 12 different identities that they could submit papers under but having having these identities they got they had they were able to submit under the identities of homosexual people black women women full stop and so that that, that kind of helps the cause when you're publishing in the in the identity studies fields and so the, mm. yeah i guess that was that was a big change in the project that i think helped them along their way quite a bit yeah. So then they started to get papers published. Now I'm going to read some of the titles of these papers out because when I first <laughs> stumbled across all of this, which was yeah. right at the very beginning, because you did a film, I remember there was a recording and it was all of them together and they were at Brett and Heather's house. Yes. And, yes yeah. And yes. that that came out about, I think it was about 2020, 2019, it was 2020. Probably, it, was, it was before that, it was 2018. 2018, think, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So that's when yeah. I first you came on my radar was way back then. Yes, some, right, some, right. So some of these papers that they submitted, so this, this first one I know did very well, was Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity, Performativity in Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. Yes. So the, the theory behind that, that was, uh, <laughs> and the summary was, this paper claims that dog parks are rape-condoning spaces and a place of rampant canine rape culture. It says <laughs> that human attitudes to both of these problems can be best understood through black feminist criminology and suggests ways to train men out of sexual violence and bigotry that they're prone to. Now, any sane person would read that and go, 
WTF. The actual paper is even even worse. It's it's madness from start to finish. And they actually won an award for this. I guess this paper was published and then they were doing a special edition of the journal, which is Feminist Geography. It was one of the leading feminist geography journals. It was doing a special edition. They said, you, this is a great study. We want to feature it in our special edition, which is, you know, tantamount to an award. So that's, that's what happened with that one. But um, it was essentially a fake study where a feminist geographer went to dog parks in Portland and then every, every day, I think it was for every day, period. every day, every day, yeah. <laughs> except for the heavy rain, but for, for, for a long, long time. And then would count the dog humping incidents in the dog park, take down how the owners of the dogs behaved, check the dog's genitals to, to make sure what gender it is, and then make wild assumptions about what that means for, for some reason, they could conclude that, that, that this was. <laughs> That uh, also nightclubs were also rape-connoting spaces out of this this strange this this strange study that they did. So it was it was wild from start to finish, just random random assumptions and uh, and broken data and all, all all sorts of horrible stuff that should have been caught out because the peer review process is uh, professional academics testing research material to make sure that it's rigorous that's that's what the process is about and it's it's the highest level of academic work you can do so it's the highest i guess seal of approval that we can we can give on research and yeah they clearly should should have understood something was up but instead they gave it an award one of my favorite scenes of the entire film was when they'd been out and uh, Helen and Pete had you know had imbibed and they were feeling <laughs> fairly relaxed and chill. Yes, yes. And and Pete, Pete, if you ever watch any video with Peter, he's he's a very kind of loose as a goose dude. You know, like he oh, always yeah. sort of appears in a state of full Extreme relaxation. confidence. And yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And the man has a prodigious uh, bathrobe collection. But that's and I'm going <laughs> to hit him up about does. that. Another, yes. Yeah, when I talk to yeah. him. But he's just such a chill dude. And so they're both chilled. That had a lovely night out. And the email comes on that this paper had been accepted. The joy of, oh my gosh, this project is coming to fruition, fueled, fueled yes. by the night out. Yes. And it was just infectious. And you just think to yourself, you could see this moment, this eureka moment of, shit, we're doing it. It's happening. We're doing it. It's, We've it's, got it. It's got it. It's, it's our first out. paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is possible, I guess. It was that was the was the main thing because they had gotten a few few rejections, which which is to be expected. But I think by that time they understood they understood the ideology better and how to work it. And because because these these are these are leading journals, to not actually be a, an, an academician in that field, it's brash to an almost ridiculous point. Anyone that's in academia would would understand. It's, it's This isn't publishing for, I guess, an opinion piece or something like that. This is like the highest level of, of academic work. And so to come from outside of that field and expect to publish in the high in the highest ranking journals with uh with no background in it is is a really big thing and so there is this there was this this thing hanging over the project all along that this might not work and this yeah. might just and because i was filming i told them that uh, if i film then i'm going to release something so i mm. at one point i thought maybe i was filming a, making a film about career suicide <laughs> and <laughs> so then there was a level of relief and and joy at how funny this thing was and 
yeah, that scene, that scene came together nicely. My camera works terrible because I was also drunk, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I made it work. <laughs> no, look, it, it was just it, the whole thing was really, really well. So I'm talking to Mike Nania. The, the film we're talking about is The Reformers. A couple of other papers that I just want to touch on because I think it was seven in total that got published yes, in the end. Yes, yeah. Yep. So th- th- these are the two which I just loved. Going through the back door. Challenging straight male homo hysteria and transphobia through receptive penetrative sex toy use. The summary is a paper that's suspicious that straight men really anally self-penetrate. I'm sorry, listeners, if you're having your breakfast <laughs> using sex, to- sex toys, and this is likely due to the fear of being a homosexual. And, it, and, and homo hysteria was something, it was a construct that Pete made up, was it not? Well, trans hysteria was so homo oh, hysteria, hysteria was was was, a, was an existing um, construct inside their literature, and <sighs> and they were they were playing around with this, and then one of the peer reviewers said, "Oh wait, you're talking about trans hysteria. You should you should develop that." And then so they de- developed this construct called trans hysteria, which is it's it's, it's just a crazy construct, really. It's, it is. Um, it's got a, it's got a nugget of truth in it, but all but like a lot of this stuff, there's some nugget of of social truth in in what they're talking about, but then they just blow it well out of proportion. Yeah. And so they generated one of these kind of almost viral constructs that 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 hap- that you know happen within the field. And I think the genius stroke with all of these papers, the absolute genius stroke, was taking a chapter out of Hitler's Mein Kampf and changing all references. To, to Jews and changing that into a feminist context. Is that right? So I think the yes, paper, Our yes. Struggle is My Struggle, Solidarity Feminism is an Intersectional Replay to Neoliberal and Choice. So they completely changed that around. Yep. And that, to me, just completely typifies how ridiculous all of this is when you have something that is so universally hated. Yeah. That all of a sudden when you take away the stigma of of the piece of writing and the emotion and everything attached to it and then you apply it back into the into the mill the academic mill i mean what yes. did, i think pete coined the term was it academic laundering like money laundering these papers uh, how, how would you explain that no that was, that was brett weinstein he, oh, was he, he brett calls weinstein? it idea idea laundering you know as, as i've said a couple of times now the academic world is where we look to for knowledge and so if something's gone through the academic peer review process journalists politicians all, all the kind of elite governance structures and and i guess uh, minds look to that body of knowledge that goes through the university and through through the research processes there as what would you say it's 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 solid that mm. that is our knowledge. That's the bedrock of what we build. You know, our liberal democracies are top of, and so the idea of idea laundering is to have a kind of der- deranged, I guess, or ideological perspective, or something that's politically expedient, something that that kind of justifies your political action or your political worldview, and then to to put that through the academic process in some sense to launder it as he's saying, for it to come out the other side as academically stamped knowledge, then all of a sudden you've got a little bit of a junket going on where you can you can give crazy ideas or or very politically biased ideas the uh, the kind of look of truth or look of of 
hard research when it mm. is anything but. It's just it's just political opinions, is, I guess. This is a concept, though, that is wound out not only across academia. I mean, it's wound out across science. It's wound out across medicine. As long as you can actually appear to take a piece of knowledge and have it justified or verified by an expert or a peer, yeah. even though the fundamental basis of that knowledge is deeply flawed or even blatantly incorrect, it doesn't matter. Yep. Because yeah. everyone else says it's okay, or you, you know, can refer back to something that else that is blatantly incorrect or infactual. Yeah. So it is. It just well, shows the, you the whole, the whole kind of the, the the DEI movement that's moving into the corporate world and a lot of our institutional lives. The the backing of that, the status that 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 allows that to move through all our all our kind of prestigious institutions is that it comes from a body of work that's took taken mm. place inside the university yeah and so you've got this political campaign that's that's uh ideologically will derange from my point of view but even you know even less than that to be kind to it you would say it was bias um and then all of a sudden you've got these people who are justified to tell everyone how to think and feel i guess because they they come out of the university as social experts they're credentialed as social experts. And so they come to meddle in our social world wherever they can. That's often through workplaces, through HR, through these uh, DEI um, projects, through the arts as well. There's a lot of there's, there's a lot of this kind of meddling in the arts. And that's the kind of how I ended up in it. And you trace the epistemological supply chain up to where where these ideas are coming from and where is this status coming from. And all of a sudden you start looking at studies about dogs humping in a park in Portland, <laughs> making wild assumptions about it. <laughs> so the paper, that particularly that Portland paper, that was the one, an investigation started. So the Wall Street Journal, yes. a reporter <clears throat> sort of caught wind. And I think mm-hmm. this is actually, from my perspective, this is, I think, where you guys were incredibly clever because that journalist started sniffing around. So uh, the come clean, the um, mm. yaha gotcha moment was it, yeah, it yeah. was about to happen. And I think how you guys constructed that was genius. Thank so yeah, well, no, it was, it was really incredibly clever because it allowed you to get out ahead of what you knew inevitably was going to happen, having gone through these pylons and cancellations and how the behavior model of these mobs yep. work so you actually created a process to get out ahead of the mob so just talk talk me through that there's the story element and then there's the plan element so the story element was that the dog park paper had been published so it was out there in the public because the, the, the academic process is very slow and so we had other papers or they had i wasn't really writing papers but they had a bunch of papers going through the peer review process at the time and the dog park paper had finally been published and put out into the public a twitter profile that is dedicated to exposing bogus scholarship found it and then started making fun of it and because the paper was so absolutely so insane and funny and weird it gained a lot of traction on the internet. And so a lot of, uh, I guess, centre-right and right-wing journalists were very interested in this because the universities are a point of interest for, for right-wing journalists now because of the stuff that we've been talking about. And so several journal journalists started to poke and prod at this paper, which was written by Helen Wilson, which was a fake, one of the fake names that the that Pete had created to, so they could write papers under 
And tugging at that thread, the wheels, I guess the wheels started to come off the whole project because uh, they weren't Helen Wilson. It was James Lindsay's inbox, which, which, which all these emails were coming to. So James's inbox started getting hammered by emails from the journal, from uh, journalists. And so one of those journalists was a, a very, very clever, she was, she was well-versed in the kinds of stuff we, we were looking at. And this is very, very complicated stuff. So you couldn't really go out with any journalists. You, you, you'd want someone who'd, who'd understood what was happening in all this. But one of the, one of the journalists, Gillian Melchor of the Wall Street Journal, had re- already written a few articles down this, this, uh, this line. And so she seemed perfect to break the story. James came clean to her and gave her all the um, all the information and as she was working through it and in, in and interviewing them I it was clear that the, the, the story even though Gillian was was kind of well versed in this stuff there was there was a big gaps in in the their ability to communicate what the hell they were up to and it was it was it could have gone either way we weren't sure if she was going to write positively or negatively and we, so we we decided, all right, well, we're going to have to get involved in this media release because she could write whatever. She could go either way with what she wrote. You know, this could possibly fizzle. On the other hand, that you've got the the people who are very defensive of these courses and and disciplines, and you've got many many foot, woke foot soldiers that are going to go into defence. So it was, it was very it was it was very likely that uh, Helen, Peter, and James were going to they were going to go ad hominem, go for the man, try and cancel them, and then squash the story completely. And so in order to make the, the information and what they'd done get a fair read in the public, we got to work in the interim time between, you know, talking to Gillian and the, the release um, on making different kinds of explainers, I guess. So low-level explainers, your, your everyday YouTube viewer could could understand it. We made videos, we made different articles, we summarized the project as best we could, could. We packaged everything up, a few comments, all the papers, everything we could, everything that was attached to the project itself. So this huge folder of, of information. We created press releases. So it was kind of like the, the, the quiet before the storm and we really wanted to f- create a flash flood of information after Gillian had broken the story. So then no matter what she wrote or what how well the other side went at suppressing the story or turning it into a cartoon version of what it was, at least we would have a, a lot of information out there. And so we started networking with with people and sending it out to sending this stuff out to journalists. After the story broke, we got in front of it. So there was a lot of information on the internet, a lot of people talking about it. And because we had told a lot of people who would be um, sympathetic to the story about it beforehand and asked them to write things and, and make things, then all of this information came out at the same time. And it, essentially, we kind of won the narrative war within the first 48 hours, which is extremely important in, the, in, the me- in this media circus mm. world. And so it was just, it was, I guess it was a kind of, it was a plan to jump out in front of any potential defence. Well, you actually, you, you got out there and were able to present the story of this as an idea to actually put a spotlight on what is an area that has been considered sacrosanct. Yes. And you actually were able to set the tone of what your idea was without 
Yes. The people on the other side turning around saying they're trying to attack the canons of academia and civilization. Yeah, and they're and the, and, the usual, they're racist, they're yeah, sexist, they're yeah. homophobic, and this is the reason why they're doing that. Well, obviously that that came. It was behind all the work that we'd done. And so I think on on mm. on balance we were able to come out ahead and it wasn't like we were creating you know propaganda for our side anyway we were really just trying to package up as much information as possible and trying to you know start it off with on a, on a good foot but but all the information's there for people to mm. to look at themselves and and come up with their own kind of perspective on and so it was kind of uh, it, was, it was about making sure it wasn't suppressed or they couldn't cartoonify the story, which which is what often happens in the in the news realm. They, they mm. just turn turn something into a cartoon version of what it actually is, and then you know win from a political standpoint and mm. assassinate the people who are attached. The thing that is inconvenient for them. And I assassinate when I say that, I mean digitally, reputationally. Yeah. Re- um, yeah. yeah, and also so and on that score, I mean Peter was already in the crosshairs with the, the DEI and diversity boards yeah. within Portland State University anyway. So yeah. his position even before you started was tenuous and he's now finally left there. Left, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he's now so Peter Bogosian has now got a com- I think it's is it conversations with Peter Bogosian and he's now writing and, and doing a body of work that you can find. Yeah, he's um, got he's got a, a non-profit organization to kind of talk about these things and mm. all kinds of content and YouTube and Substack. And he yeah, yeah so he's and right ta- in at the moment. Yeah, and I'm gonna hopefully talk to him more about that in the coming yeah. weeks. James Lindsay created New Discourses, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic resource if you want to learn anything about the other side of this wokery. New Discourses is the place to go. But he then, from that body of work and all the work that they did creating this, that was also the genesis for um, the book that he wrote with Helen Pluckrose. Yeah. So we haven't really talked about Helen. She was kind of, I felt that Helen was the the matronly mothery um <laughs> sort of she was almost she she kind of tempered down it's like she tempered down two very excitable puppies and got them <laughs> focused on the work that was my view of it i like that actually you, yeah you, you lived Helen, in Helen, it. <laughs> yes yeah no it's perfect it was like we were because because we're like teenage boys in this you know having uh, making jokes about dog humping and putting objects in people's bums and all sorts of stuff so it's, it's like it's very it's very uh, how would you explain like a crass yes. boyish very boyish fun it was it was like this punk thing that we were doing and helen pluckrose is um was the third member of the the team who has more of a background in the fields that we were talking about she doesn't believe in what they push forward but she has spent a lot of time looking at it and trying to understand it because she looks as it at it as a religion and was studying it like she used to study religious texts of the of she's a historian she's a feminist historian that used to study religious texts and then she got interested in this from from an outsider's perspective and started studying it and so she had a lot of knowledge that the guys didn't have and so she became instrumental in the you know, construction of the papers and making sure that they didn't, I guess, step on any red flags that were invisible because mm. there's a lot of customary behaviours you have to adhere to to and work f- in that world. Exactly. And from this project came cynical theories, which when I talk to people, because I've done a lot of reading, when I talk to people and they say, oh, this is just all so confusing, that in a way for me now is a go-to text. It's like, look, yeah. if you want to know all the academic background and where all the roads feed into Yep. read this book because yep. they explain all the different elements 
and how it comes into what is the modern context now of, of critical theory. So, so in a way, so the project not only did this exposure, it also now created this incredible body of work from the three of them. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, and that that, that book is that book is a bestseller. So there's a, there's a lot of kind of I guess pushback information that's now out there in the world and in the heads of a lot mm. of people. And so yeah. from the point from the point where the where we were doing the project, I think the world was a little was more imbalanced in our way to be even to understand this stuff. I think, and I think that from that exposure and then the, the the hard work that's taken place after that, especially with Jim, mm. he's going further and further into it. Now you've got people like uh, Chris Rufo in the in the US moving this into a kind of activism to push back at this kind of DEI bureaucracy and um, all sorts of other people have kind of uh, have found an in through through this this higher level philosophical academic work that's that's taken place do you feel proud that you broke ground to allow that you sort of started it's just been, it's been a, a long time for these guys because why the length of time sorry this is the, one of the questions that i have is why the length of time from when because you would have had this all in the can yeah three four yeah. years ago so why so long yeah. to get it out it's uh, it's the film industry so i i wanted to the the idea for for making the film the way i wanted to make the film because it was so you can't get funding for something like this and so yeah I, I tried because i had you know networks and thing from my last film in australia and i probably would have been able to if i had a if i created a film with any other subject matter but because of this subject matter you get uh pushed out of the inner circles of of the arts and and the film network and everything like that but that's, that's okay it is what it is i'm interested in this partially because you're not allowed to talk about it and so the plan for this was to jump in film parts of it and release bits and pieces along the way in order to get enough funding to get, head into post-production and then turn it into a feature film and then put it through the more traditional avenues. And I, there's such a big story that I thought, hey, th- there's a chance that we'll be able to go through the traditional avenues. And th- the reason for that is uh, partially just because, you know, I'd like a career in the film industry, but also partially the channels, the kind of traditional film channels have access to people who would never come across the YouTube stuff, would never be listening to this thing that we're talking about now, we're talking on now. They're, they're kind of a more mainstream audience. And so in a break that mainstream with a story with a story like this, I think would be a very interesting thing. And I think that they would be more interested in it if the kind of establishment backed something like this and then people watched it and thought about it. I think it would be a great experience from someone who's never been exposed to any of this stuff to see that this thing even took place. The hope was that that could happen. Phase one of that project went really well. So we, we got enough funds from uh, the bits and pieces that we put up on YouTube. I mean, it's a me- meager amount of, of production value, so it's not going to blow anyone away from a production value standpoint. But it was enough to, to, to you know, get some music made and... Um, I edited it myself, so you know all that that time was kind of you know passion work, and we we were able to shoot some extra stuff with the talented director of photography, and get it and get the sound design done, and so all, all that stuff costs a lot of money, and so we were able to do that and get it to the point where um, usually throughout in, in the documentary process there comes one point where distributors and sales agents and things like that come on board and then you get more money to turn it into a really slick 
presentation and uh, and then you go through all the festivals and things like that. Um, that didn't happen for us, you know, partially because it, how, how would you explain it? It's kind of an artistic experimentation, but I think it's mainly because the film industry is an extension of the academic disciplines and world mm. that we critique in the film. The process of trying to get it through that traditional uh, world, because I would often have often male, often older school, kind of Gen X, maybe even boomers, boomer producers that love the hell out of it. They loved that it was subversive. They thought it was really funny and they just wanted to be part of it. And then they, they would do, they would go and feel out the industry to see, see where it could fit. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't fit every, anywhere mm-hmm. that, you know, people would be horrified. They would run for the hills, wouldn't want to be attached to this thing because of, you know, they wouldn't want their fingerprints on a crime scene as far as, <laughs> as far as the industry goes. And so that process took ages because we, we got little, we got little bites from people who would be interested and then, and then disappear. And then something else would pop up and then it disappear. And then something else would pop up and it disappear. And me- meanwhile, the, the industry turned upside down because of COVID. So that's, that's yeah. like, it's not like that's nothing in this story of, of the release and so we got to the point where it was like all right screw it well let's, let's just do let's just do our own release and I, I decided to do it on Substack because I want to use the film as a vehicle to create as a, as a kind of like development process and so Substack has a subscription model and so I've broken the film down into four parts and people subscribe to see it $7 to subscribe for one month. If they want to move on, they can move on. They've, they've paid the $7. And then if they want to stick around, I will go into the development and research process for my next film. Mm. And so it's kind of, it's it's an attempt to use the film and the interest in the film to fund the development for my next one and to just, to make a kind of, I guess, a, uh, a functional model for filmmaking outside of the establishment because I'm not in- really interested mm. in anything the establishment will allow me to make, especially in the documentary world. It's quite... Yeah. Um, well, it's those parallel say, structures yeah. really, isn't it? I mean, they are parallel yeah. structures, yeah, mm. yeah. And so, so I guess, just... I guess that, that's, a, that's a long-winded story about, about the, the, the release. But it's, it's, the thing about the release is, even though it's, it's a long time after, it's, been, it's doing really, really well. And so I'm really happy about this because I'm in a uh, position now where I can jump into the research. I don't, you know, I don't need my day job anymore. I can kind of start researching and, you know, making films and uh, again on my own, which I'm really excited about. And so the experimental Substack release for this thing has been, has been excellent. So Mm. it's, it's a happy ending to an otherwise harrowing tale of filmmaking. Oh, fantastic. And so that Substack, where can people, we've excited everyone now, now people that don't know about it, where can they find that, Mike? They can find that at uh, Michael Nainer at substack.com. So that's N-A-Y-N-A, but don't panic. N-A-Y. Remember, I give all of this to our lovely Lizard inbox at realitycheck.radio so you can Excellent. always check in with her. Well, the, the other thing the other thing we'll plug is episode one of the four episodes is free to, for everyone to see. So if you go to my um, YouTube channel, uh, Mike Nana on YouTube, you'll you'll see episode one there. So you get you get a get a taste of it. A little Susan of what's to come. But it is definitely <laughs> worth it. I actually rewatched it again last night before we chatted and right. uh and it's fantastic. I've been waiting for this film for such a long time. So for me it was it was uh, great. And I just Good. thank you so much, Mike. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Uh don't disappear, everybody. Storm all great content here to come with Counterculture. You with Marie, and this is Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. 
Reality Check Radio. Reality Check Radio.